your cake online. What is up, Cake Nation, and welcome back to the Chemistry Cake Online Podcast, where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online, and today we are kicking off our biochemistry chemical biology season, which I am incredibly hyped for because, gosh, do we have quite the lineup of amazing scientists for you folks. Speaking of amazing scientists, today's sweet guest received her bachelor's degree in biology with a minor in honors interdisciplinary studies at the University of Central Arkansas and is currently a fifth-year PhD candidate in biochemistry and biophysics at Oregon State University. She is also an incredible science communicator and comes up with like really great short videos that are accurate, accessible, and hilarious. Cake Nation, would you help me give a warm welcome to today's sweet guest, Heather Masson for Sif. Heather, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I hope you are well. Uh, what are you up to these days? Hey, thanks for asking me to come on the show. Uh, so I am, as you said, a PhD candidate at Oregon State University, and I work in a lab that focuses a lot on protein structures and protein dynamics broadly. So what that means is effectively the proteins in your body are what do the work around in your body. So just like tools in a toolbox, the shape of those proteins or the shape of the tools determines what their function is and what they're able to do. So uh, what that means is that I, by studying protein structure, I study and our lab in general studies some really, really broad processes. So uh, the methods we use can be applied to questions about viruses or cancer or just cell replication in general, any kind of cellular process. That's very cool. Um, yeah. I had two thoughts that came into mind, and this first thought might spark a bit of controversy, but um, what I'm hearing and very just very subtly is... Um, so a lot of folks say that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Oh, yeah. But would you say that proteins are the powerhouse of the cell? Uh, I would say that because without the proteins that are in the mitochondria, the mitochondria would not be able to generate the energy that it does generate for you. So proteins are the powerhouses of the cell. Yes. <laughs> I kid. I, I also like love the whole mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. But I also, um, my background, um, at least as an undergraduate, was pharmacological chemistry. And that was a lot of biochemistry. And so when I had learned that um, proteins were really the, the powerhouse of the cell, or at least that, that blew my mind. Um, but speaking of proteins, that kind of leads into my second thought. You had previously mentioned that your favorite molecule is uh, dynine light chain 8 or LC8. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I know that it's a protein, but other than that, I admittedly have no idea what it does. Would you sure. mind explaining what it is that LC8 is and why it is your favorite molecule? Yeah. So LC8 does a lot of things, which is why it's one of my favorite proteins. And it's a protein that uh, the lab that I'm doing my PhD in has looked at for a really long time. And the first sort of original 
role that people thought it had was um, you have these motors that literally just kind of walk around your cell and carry things along with them and kind of bring bring stuff to where they need to go. And one of the, that big motor is made up of a whole bunch of different proteins. LC8 is one of those proteins and it brings together two strands uh, so that it can do do its function, essentially. But since then, LC8 has been found to be involved in all kinds of cellular processes, and that includes viruses, it includes cancer, it includes a lot of the uh, things that I've already mentioned. But so what it's, it's called a hub protein because it's a protein that is involved in effectively every cellular process in the body, and we're still learning a lot about that. And it does this by having a really specific sort of hole that other things fit into. So mm-hmm. it's able to uh, bind to lots of other different proteins. And in doing so, it has a role in really, really diverse processes. And so LC8 is awesome. And in general, I think all hub proteins are really, really interesting because it's you know using the same protein just over and over and over again. So it's like, it's versatile. It's like a, a multi-purpose key. Yes. Maybe. Um, would you mind talking more about uh, the certain kinds of cellular processes that this protein is involved with? Sure. Uh, so one thing, one process that it's involved in is actually being harnessed by viruses. So uh, the rabies virus, for example, and the Ebola virus both have proteins that are viral proteins. They're not uh, what we would say a host protein. Like They're not human proteins. Um, the viruses have evolved to actually make a protein that binds to LC8, and in doing so, LC8 binding allows replication to happen. And without LC8 around, the rabies virus doesn't, doesn't replicate. So there was a really, really cool study that another lab did a little while ago that showed if you give mice rabies, rabies is 100% lethal, so they, they all die. Uh, but if you give mice rabies that has the one small piece of the LC8 binding part mutated away, every single mouse lived. So oh. that binding interaction is really, really critical for rabies, especially it seems, um, but for other viruses as well. And uh, that's just one example. So I'm curious, at least for, you know, this rabies virus, it LC8 is necessary. So is LC8 necessary in, say, higher organisms like humans or mice? It, it seems like it's not particularly uh, necessary for mice since they all lived without it. Uh, no, the mice still had LC8. It was oh, just I that see. the rabies virus couldn't, that they gave them couldn't bind to the LC8. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, LC8 is absolutely essential for any mammal to live at all. If you... <sighs> If you try and uh, make a cell line, I think even without that won't make LC8, it just doesn't, it's not viable. 
Got it. Okay. Wow. That's so, that's insane. So, so they, they had LC8. It was just mutated in such a way that the virus could not bind to it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's so cool. I, I'm now, I'm tracking. And so I presume that this is your favorite molecule because it's so versatile. Yes. Yeah. I just think that that's really, really exciting and really interesting and a really weird problem because it's not only involved in viruses, but, um, you know, different, different steps of the cell cycle and they're consequently like cancer and other diseases, I think. So if you, you can't, somehow we need to understand this interaction and be able to inhibit it in a way that doesn't actually damage the LC8 that is necessary for being alive at all. So it's really, really complex. And the way that it binds to different things, we still don't understand fully what dictates that and what factors are at play. And it's just a really complex little thing. That sounds really complex. Wow, that's so wild. Like, it's also so cool. Um, it's, it's, uh, so it's kind of like a black box. Yeah. Which is like, it's exciting, but also like, we don't know what's going on. So we're just gonna figure that out. Oh, yeah. So it's just, there's other there's other hub proteins as well. Um, like 1433 is an example or... Uh, P53 is one that people have heard about a lot, but there's different kinds of hub proteins and some of them will bind to a lot of different proteins, but bind them in different locations. Um, But Mm LC8 is the type of hub protein that binds to everything in the exact same way. So they're different. They're different problems. Interesting. So you had mentioned just very briefly P53, are you referring to cytochrome P53? Uh, I think so. I forget. Okay. I don't actually study this, but it's the one that's really associated with cancer. Yeah, I think it's cytochrome P53. I, I find that one particularly fascinating. I, I find a lot of the cytochromes really fascinating, or any protein that requires a heme, and more specifically iron, because iron is my favorite metal. I don't know if that is basic of me. I mean, iron is pretty acidic. So anyway, anyway, okay. Um, That's so fun. Uh, So is this the protein that you're currently working with in your research? Or like, what is the focus of your research now? Yeah, so I have worked with LC8 and done, I've had several projects kind of throughout my PhD time. And LC8 is something that I'm always, we're always sort of working on in my lab with different in different ways. Um, but what my project is now is actually related to the some of the coronavirus proteins. So the, the method that our lab uses is called nuclear magnetic resonance. And it's basically just a huge, huge magnet and uh, has a really strong magnetic field. And everything that we like when you put a protein or chemical, uh, any sort of element into it, it has, the nuclei has a magnetic field of its own. Mm -hmm. And whenever you put it into this big magnetic field, uh, it causes a perturbation of that nuclei and it makes it generate its own electromagnetic signal that is 
um, of a frequency that is specific to, in this case, proteins. So mm -hmm. it generates sort of a fingerprint of what that protein should look like in this instrument. And it's an instrument that allows us to look at protein structures, but also uh, protein dynamics, um, essentially mm -hmm. how they wiggle around and move and flexible, do flexible things because proteins aren't static. They don't just like go right. where they're supposed to be and sit there. They actually like move around in all the fluids in your body and move around in the cell. Uh, so mm -hmm. the, the NMR is what we use a lot and what I've used a lot. So in the past, I was looking at uh, cataracts related proteins and how the dynamics of those proteins are involved in aggregation potentially. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, I am a little more interested in just like applying those methods to whatever protein is sort of relevant. And I think yeah. I, I think a lot of scientists get really excited about one system or one protein or one thing. Um, right. And I guess I'm still, a, I'm still excited about one thing, but uh, whenever coronavirus, this whole pandemic sort of settled in, uh, we started looking at some of the proteins and what we thought would be interesting and uh, decided to focus on that. And I'm really excited to do that because it seems very timely and if mm -hmm. I think a lot of scientists are taking up this challenge and being really, really collaborative in ways that often we're not because because you want to be the first one to figure <laughs> out something. But in this case, it's just kind of better if anyone figures it out. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I've started I've started doing that now. That's so cool. I, well, first and foremost, I'm really a proponent for collaboration. Um, I think part of it is just because I am like, I love science and like NMR is super cool. I find it so fascinating. Um, that is not my area of expertise though. I'm more into magnetometry. So um, using a superconducting uh, quantum interference device um, where we look at the magnetic quote unquote magnetic activity specifically of the electrons rather than the nuclei. Oh yeah. Um, but it's, it's a similar idea, I guess you could say. Sure. Um, but I did have I did have a question um, following up. Uh, so NMR, you're studying proteins. I would imagine um, these proteins are huge, right? Like tons of protons, tons of carbons mm -hmm. in this gigantic protein, or or rather gigantic molecule, right? Like I would presume that um, studying smaller proteins, uh, maybe like myoglobin. Myoglobin is pretty small, right? Um, using NMR would be a little bit easier than, say, ferritin, where you're, you're looking at like hundreds, yeah. like lots of, lots of, lots of carbons and, and protons. I, I wonder, um, are you using carbon and proton NMR or are you using like nitrogen NMR or what's going on there? Uh, so I use, primarily use nitrogen NMR, uh, but okay. use carbon nitrogen NMR if basically if that protein hasn't been solved structurally or mm -hmm. we need to confirm what each each point that corresponds to an amino acid that makes up the protein is. Mm -hmm. um, and 
yeah, you're right about the size. There is a definite size limit to NMR. So you want to, we have to look at proteins that are reasonably small or otherwise we look at tiny pieces of the protein. So we will recombinantly make, you know, we're interested in like this domain of this huge protein. So we'll isolate that and purify that and look at that one, that one only and ask questions about it. So it's a, it's a little limited in that way, um, Mm -hmm. which is why then people who study structural structure of proteins, they often use a lot of different methods to ask different questions. And so like the NMR is really good for really flexible regions of the protein or Mm -hmm. getting some really, really fine details of it. Uh, But there's other methods like cryo-EM or crystallography that are Mm -hmm. more static and work for bigger proteins. Yeah. Okay. That's super cool. So, so, and this is, we're talking about like utilizing NMR right now, specifically for structure. You'd also mentioned something about uh, protein dynamics. And so I guess my question with regard to dynamics is, are you using NMR um, for like the conformational changes of the protein or how the protein moves does the protein move throughout the body? Like I, yeah. Yeah. So you can use it for conformational changes and there's people in my lab who are doing that. Um, but also there's just like some parts of the protein are what we would call intrinsically disordered. So it's like a ribbon attached to something like a brick. So if there's a really, really, (laughs) if there's a really, really structured part of the protein, it might be like a brick and then a different part of the protein will be more like a ribbon and it's just going to float around and do stuff. And for a long time, people I think didn't take that part seriously or they didn't, Mm -hmm. it's also hard to look at. And, you know, if it was flexible, you know, what, what's, possible function could it have but if you actually think about like a string you realize it has way more functions than like a really specific screwdriver for example or um, something with a something with a set structure doesn't change that much but something that's really flexible is going to interact with things it's going to be able to wrap around on itself it might Mm. adopt structure whenever it binds to a different protein does a lot of stuff like that so understanding which parts of the protein are the most ribbon-like essentially is really really important and can be really informative about what that protein is doing or uh, what it's coming into contact with I see so so the parts of the protein that are pretty set, I guess you could say, or they don't change very much, those are the bricks. And yep. the parts of the protein that are, you know, like you mentioned, flexible, can fold in on itself, are interactive slash reactive, uh, those are the ribbons. And that's those are the parts that we care about. Yeah, I mean, we care about all of it, but in well, my right. case, I care. I care right. more. About <laughs> Heather cares about ribbons. Yes, <laughs> send tweet. Um, <laughs> so cool. Okay, so am I allowed to inquire what you are learning about Rona? Yeah. So, I I haven't learned a ton yet because it's a pretty new project, um, and yeah. So basically. 
anytime you start a new project or a new protein, working with a new protein, there's a ton of work that goes into just being able to get to the NMR. So mm-hmm. yeah, currently there's just been a lot of optimization of like getting the protein to express and getting the protein to be mm. stable and getting mm-hmm. the protein to be happy, basically. Um, so, so we haven't even gotten to the purification step yet. We, well, we, we sort of have, but it's. Okay. We're working on it. Yeah, we're working <laughs> on it. All right. Yeah, that's so, I, folks at home, folks at home, um, if, if anyone's wondering, working with proteins is like, I've worked with a protein before, not very long, but I've worked with a protein before. And, uh, it is, it is a, it is a, it's a time. It's a challenge. Um, (laughs) just trying to make that. And I was working with a protein that was pretty robust. Like I was working with ferritin, like ferritin is pretty robust. Like you can heat it to, I believe a hundred degrees Celsius and it'll be like, yeah, it's fine. Everything's fine. Life is fine. (laughs) But the, but you know, like what's, once they get cold, see, cause I was, I was putting them, putting this protein through quite a bit of I don't even know how to explain it we were just cooling it to like two kelvin which is very cold um we learned that proteins don't like that um yeah yeah don't let your proteins get cold right or too cold don't get them too cold um yeah proteins mostly like like a very specific uh four degrees celsius right like two to two to four uh, they do like that usually. There's a pretty narrow range, yeah. and then it varies a little bit per protein. The pH varies per protein. The amount of salt varies per protein. There's all kinds yeah. of variables that matter. Right. And it gets even more difficult whenever you start looking at intrinsically disordered proteins or portions of yeah. the protein, uh, yeah. because those are often prone to aggregate and just like completely fall out of solution or yes they're also more prone to like degradation and you know all kinds of problems that's not good so so question Mm -hmm. um i know that there's a difference between denaturing and degradation and degradation is the worst of the two because that's when your protein completely falls apart and like things are breaking apart right? right As opposed to denaturing, where it's just the the ter- the ter- tertiary structure that's kind of falling apart. Yeah, it's the secondary structure that's falling apart. Well, I guess and tertiary structure that's falling apart. So, when you denature a protein, it basically becomes one long strand and it loses all of the structures. Um, right. But actually, if you were looking at a protein that is mostly disordered, sometimes we actually purify them in conditions that just completely denature the protein and then later on just keep working with it because it doesn't have a structure to go back to. Right, right. So we can actually use that for our advantage. Um, And sometimes you can get a protein to refold happily. But Happily? I have to to point this out. I just love... Almost every biochemist that I have encountered has used the word happy to describe their protein. It's like, I gotta make it happy. And I'm just like, I, I never, I never talk to my like polymers that way. I'm like, I gotta make a polymer happy. Like, no, there's like, I need to make sure that I take care of my, my proteins. Like, like, my proteins are so needy. I need to make them happy. And I'm like, 
what is going on over yeah, there? No, you're right. I don't even want to know. I mean, like, I kind of, I kind of get it, but like, maybe not to the degree of like folks who work with proteins for years. I like worked for one protein for maybe a few months, which was already like, yeah, I can't, I can't hang. Y'all are, y'all are like so cool. Yeah, we treat them, I think, like plants. <laughs> yeah, maybe more like maybe like if I were to make an analogy, perhaps like the chemistry that I do, because like I the the stuff I work with is pretty robust. It's like a succulent, whereas y'all are working with like you have to maybe like they're tomatoes, you have to really take care of them, or like if they don't if they're not like angled toward the sun just right or the ph of the soil isn't quite correct right. they just wither and that that's really sad just like that yeah just like that like your proteins will wither away and just be sad but we don't want our proteins to be sad we want them to be happy right so moral of the story kids at home make your proteins happy um okay well uh it is unfortunately about the end of our chat but but before i let you go um I have one very important question to ask you. Yes. Um, and I know the folks at home are, are, are anticipating it. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite cake flavor and why? Um, my favorite cake flavor is Funfetti because okay. I, I just like to look at it, for first of all. It's pretty. <laughs> and very colorful, yeah. Um, and it can go with any kind of icing or filling. It's very versatile. Okay. And I, I like that in a cake, I think. Yeah. Sometimes I want to have chocolate and sometimes I want to have, I don't know, strawberry icing. Right. Right. So, so I'm hearing a theme here. Heather yes. really appreciates versatility, both in her proteins and in her cakes. Yes. Um, Funfetti is so fun. Like Funfetti is like birthday cake, right? Like the, the yeah, it's like the thing. the birthday cake that has all little rainbow sprinkles in it. That's so fun. There, it's so fun. I love Funfetti. No wonder it's called Funfetti. <laughs> okay, so question: Have you ever had Funfetti cake with cream cheese frosting? I probably have. How? What are your sentiments about cream cheese frosting? Um, I feel I feel like I like it. You feel like you like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not okay. a big cake person, if I'm honest, but okay. I, I, I like, I like it if it's given to me. That's completely fair. Yeah, totally fair. Um, I think this was a conversation I had on a previous episode with Marissa Tessman, where I had mentioned that for health's sake, I actually prefer pies over cakes not and, and it's primarily because most cakes um there are some cakes that have nuts in them and cake is allergic to nuts oh. so i have to be careful because like like almonds are often like used to garnish certain cakes or there's like i believe german chocolate cake also has some type of nut filling sure. or, or peanut butter um and so i love cake if they're cake friendly um but alas yeah i i mean i do enjoy desserts but cakes are like top notch anyway well heather uh thank you so much for chatting with me about your science today um it was so fun and really informative um thank you for for explaining nmr and how that works um and uh for 
reiterating that proteins desire to be happy, <laughs> that we care a lot about their happiness. Um, I certainly learned so much. Uh, to the listeners at home, thank you for joining us in the chat today. Um, if you would like to continue learning about biochemistry from Heather, you are more than welcome to follow her on Twitter and TikTok at HeyCurlyTop. Um, that will be in the description. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to hop aboard the hype train too, you are more than welcome to follow me on Twitter at ChemistryCake. And as a friendly reminder, the Instagram handle has changed to just at ChemistryCake. So uh, it is at ChemistryCake across all um, social media. Either way, you are welcome to follow and partake in the mischief and shenanigans. Um, all right, folks, that is all we have for you today. Uh, this is your gentle reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify our village. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off. Mm.